again, and welcome to Political Dharma. This is Alan Zundell. First off, I wanted to tell you that I have a new website at politicaldharma.com, and there you can find links to my Facebook page and YouTube channel in case you want to find my videos or leave comments about them, and also, also find links to the various podcast platforms that you can find the Political Dharma episodes on. Uh, so rather than announcing each type of uh, social media thing that you can find me on, you'll find it all there together at politicaldharma.com. So the last couple episodes, I've been talking about socialism and spirituality. And today I want to finish up the series of three episodes on that. Not that I'm going to abandon the topic forever because it will be a theme through my other episodes as well. But I want to finish the story that I started about it. So in the first episode, I talked in general about spirituality as something somewhat distinct from religion and how it might be uh, uh, different ways of looking at socialism might include morality or not. And I ended by talking about how reason and the application of reason to religious questions was part of the thinking of the founders, the American revolutionaries, and those who created the Constitution were the first uh, founders of this uh, nation. They were skeptical towards the what they regarded as the superstitious and dogmatic parts of religion, but some of them, like Thomas Jefferson, still thought there was some value in religion. And James Madison turned to social engineering uh, and the use of reason to understand society and how it could function to try to settle class divisions. That was where I started with. And then the last episode, number two on this three-part series, I talked about the birth of socialism and how that um, sense of applying reason to social engineering, that is trying to reform society and its basic structures according to a rational plan, and how um, the skepticism towards religion both fed into the birth of socialism, along with the early workers' resistance to early capitalism, that is, early workers, the workers' early resistance to capitalism. All these fed into the creation of the socialist movement, which by the end of that century, beginning of the 20th century, was dominated primarily by Marxist philosophy, which was explicitly atheist. By that, I don't mean he made it a central tenet that God does not exist. Rather, he had an interpretation of religion that rested on the idea that it was a kind of illusion derived from our sense of oppression and that the world could be a better place. Only we make the mistake of thinking the power to create the better world is located somewhere in heaven and God, and God's going to intervene to free us from our oppressions and create a better world. The power is within our own hands to understand society scientifically, organize to change it, and then create the kind of world that we have long dreamed and hope of. So um, Marxism regarded religion as a secondary type phenomena with no real substance in its own. But not everybody agreed with the direction of the uh, those members of the intelligentsia that were atheistic or even agnostic. There were, of course, a lot of people who wanted to hold on to traditional religion, including 
educated people and members of the clergy and aristocracy, and often for political reasons, like they associated uh, atheism with change and social change, which they resisted. But also among the working people themselves, there were quite a few who still held on to traditional religious views. And they either avoided the socialist movement because of that and stayed aloof from it, joined unions that were not affiliated with Marxist currents, or they simply compartmentalized their thinking that their religious practice wasn't one part of their life and their political and uh, labor organizing practices were in another part of their life. So just separating, but maintaining both somehow with a, with a mental process of uh, not bothering with trying to make them perfectly consistent. But what I'm really interested in talking about today is a middle ground of those who saw some value in religion, yet accepted scientific questioning of religion. By scientific, I mean by the standards of the time. I don't mean to compare it to natural science. It was more of an inquiry and application of reason and evidence to things that had long been believed um, and exploration of the world around us. Now that uh, Europeans had colonized vast parts of the world and were uh, in trade with other parts and able to explore them, they realized there's uh, a lot more out there. And the scientific approach to re religion on behalf of those who still wanted to think that religion had some importance was started with a comparison of ancient manuscripts. Now, again, the scientific approach in the 1800s, as well as earlier, had more to do with a systematic collection of data, of information, evidence, and then the use of explicit methods that are well-reasoned for interpreting and using that information for um, making sense of it. And two areas, those who were especially interested in religious questions, looked for ancient manuscripts. One was in uh, the Bible. And here what they did was they found various copies of the Bible around the world in different places, ancient libraries or monasteries, um, wherever they could find it, uh, fragments of the Bible later in some cases, or old jars in the desert, wherever they found these old religious documents, they would use, they would compare them to each other. And because Christian scriptures had been transcribed by hand for centuries and centuries, they thought, well, there's obviously room for error and revisions, whether intentional or not, in the way people copied out the Bible. And we better compare our different versions and see where they may have crept in. So if we can identify older versions, they're more sound. Or if we can identify where mistakes or changes are obvious by comparing different uh, versions of the same Bible, that is, different actual physical Bibles, to each other. One's written in different languages sometimes, give you better insight into the original. They could reconstruct closer what the Bible actually, what the scriptures, the books within the Bible actually said originally. And then they could use tools like analyzing the language used in different passages of the Bible, comparing the recounting of history to evidence from archaeology and other sources of history, or even comparing 
accounts of historical events in different parts of the Bible to see how consistent they were. And the upshot of all this was to determine that the Bible was uh, had a lot of errors in it and a lot of inconsistencies, and there were a lot of hands at work, so that they had to look at it as a human creation. And there was a shift in emphasis here from looking at the, the Bible as something that was in some way dictated to God speaking directly to human beings who wrote it down or witnessed Jesus walking among us and wrote down exactly what happened. Shift from thinking of as that way as the Bible is a very faithful um, transcription from God's divine revelation to somebody in one way or another, to thinking of it as something that human beings created in response to um, some type of inspiring events that they had passed through. Uh, in the case of Christian scriptures in particular, the idea was, well, a lot that the Bible has to say about Jesus may not be historically true or very consistent in the various gospels. But what we can say is that there was likely some person that inspired these stories about Jesus. And we want to get to the root of what it was about Jesus or what he taught that move people in a direction that they really wanted to join this Christian movement. So study of the Christian scriptures on behalf of people who wanted to take seriously scientific methods of investigation, often moved in the direction of saying, well, what is the real message of the Bible that we can glean out of it from careful examination of the language and comparisons between text and the rest of that apparatus, that scholarly uh, procedure? And a lot of them turn to ideas of social justice, that what really Jesus was trying to do or what you get out of the prophets in the Jewish scriptures that were incorporated into the Bible was the idea that God wants us to take care of the most vulnerable within our society to create societies that were just in a way. And that uh, Jesus' message was also, also in line with that of the prophets from earlier in that he invade against the abuse of the poor and the uh, and he brought healing and uh, you know things like that um, so against the literal picture of what may have been in the bible they were trying to say that this the aim was here to create a community <clears throat> that was uh, more just that was more fair that treated everybody as sacred and important and deserving of respect because god loved us so just like ancient Israel was a community that prophets kept calling back to their history as being freed from slavery and not to oppress other people. The Christian community was created around the idea that we had to, um, it was really the church, the early churches, great communities that took care of each other and treated each person with respect and et cetera, et cetera. So some of these more modern interpreters were seeing this as central to the message behind scripture. Um, now, with other scriptures from other religions, we had a different take. Uh, they were finding scriptures from sources in India and Asia, things that were Buddhist, like the Bhagavad Gita or the ancient Vedas, or Buddhist scriptures like the Lotus Sutras, and they translated them and then tried to interpret them. And some took these up as signs that there was some common core to the inspiration behind various forms of religion, that even though Eastern and Western religions could look very different in a lot of ways, 
they both had some kind of core of an encounter with um, the divine presence within, whether you want to call it divine in a sense of a God or divine in a sense of connected to a larger reality, that if we looked within, we could find this, this different way of knowing, this wisdom and this inspiration and intuition into consciousness and the nature of reality and the rest of that in the northwest uh not the northwest that's where i am in the northeast united states you had the transcendentalist movement where some ministers of the unitarian church very forward thinking uh, did away with a lot of doctrines like the, the trinity and said that they just were going to worship a single god they read a lot of these scriptures and they um in translation at least and they took from that the idea that okay just like christianity has some respect for all people because you know god loves all people so these other religions said there's a way we can develop ourselves through practices like um, study of scripture and meditation to develop that inner potential and um, create a better world out of it as well one example would be henry david thoreau who was a transcendentalist and very familiar with some of the uh, Eastern scriptures, and also took social action, like refusing to pay taxes for the Mexican-American War, which he thought was an unjust war, which, by the way, I think was probably an unjust war, too, looking back on history. So throughout the 18th century, the, these members of the intelligentsia, whether they were ministers or just um, writers and philosophers and artists, or they were people connected with universities were studying scriptures, both Christian and Eastern, and deriving out of it some degree of belief in either or both that the, the valuable part of these scriptures was to work for a better world or to cultivate our inner um, dimension of sacred humanity, of uh, connection to divine wisdom or something along that line okay i want to single out one particular christian who is sometimes called a christian socialist who did most of his writing in the mid to late 1800s around the same time the socialist movement was getting off the ground and you have this competition that i discussed last episode between marx and proudhon uh, his name this Englishman was John Ruskin. He grew up as an evangelical Christian, and then he encountered these writings about um, how the scriptures were not totally accurate or to be trusted for history and possibly for theology. And he lost quite a bit of confidence in the traditional forms of religion he had been taught. Instead, he found himself still moved towards something that he felt was present within religion when he adhered to it, which was the idea that a better world is possible and we should work towards taking care of each other. He came up with a plan for a type of society built on cooperatives and charitable foundations and people working together, very similar to the anarchist socialist ideas. And I only bring him up, he's like one among many, many Christians who traveled roads similar to this, because he had influence on a young lawyer from India who studied in England and later came across one of Ruskin's books called Unto This Last. That lawyer was Mohandas Gandhi. And he took 
a lot of um, ideas from John Ruskin and used it in his work in South Africa to work for the civil rights of uh, Indians and uh, people of color in South Africa in the early part of the 20th century. He created his first ashram on the bounds of um, manual labor and more simple living and cooperative lifestyles, and also as a place where he could train social activists to work in the causes that he was uh, spearheading. So Gandhi, in a sense, was combining uh, a lot of these threads together in his work throughout the 20th century. He also had um, respect for all religions in his ashrams. They would read from various scriptures in their prayer ceremonies. Um, he tried to bring together people across all religious lines, still with a spiritual backing toward his philosophy, but yet saying it could incorporate different religious viewpoints, whether it was Islamic or Christian or Hindu. Um, so he was very much a case of how social activism and these threads of spiritual inspiration could come together. And of course, there was others, uh, not just Gandhi, but a lot of uh, British and American people, clergy people who moved from being more traditional Christians toward things, uh, movements that were called Christian socialism or the social gospel. And they took positions in slums and working class neighborhoods and began to work for the welfare of workers and other people. And eventually some of them became Christian socialists. Um, we have examples of people here in America who were leaders of the Socialist Party, came directly out of um, working within Christian ministries of one kind or another in poor neighborhoods to becoming leaders of socialists in America. One was Norman Thomas, who was the longtime leader and many time presidential candidate for the Socialist Party in the mid 20th century. And another was Michael Harrington, who was the founder of the Democratic Socialists of America, which is still in existence. He worked in a um, inner city parish with the Catholic worker movement and um, eventually became an atheist and a socialist, but still maintained a lot of that Christian fervor toward helping the, the, those who are not as well off. All right, so that's the development of these movements. One other part of it I wanna throw in here, especially in the 20th century, is that in the mid 20th century, a lot of these things started to come together and create more of a mass awareness of them, more of a mass following for them. Some of the uh, ways that this happened was of course, through the influence of these Christians who were involved in social movements back in the 1800s, abolitionists fighting against slavery were definitely pointing towards scripture to justify their cause, even as the pro-slavery people were pointing to scripture, both sides were taking religious positions on it. And in the 20th century, you had movements to help working people, to help the poor, to um, anti-war movements, all these kinds of things in the earliest 20th century, spreading to lay people through clergy and then through uh, mass protests and other forms of political activism. Martin Luther King is a good example of all these threads coming together in the 1960s, 50s and 60s. He learned a lot from Mohandas Gandhi about techniques that were inspired by religious uh, convictions 
what Gandhi regarded as moral means of fighting his political battles. He was a, a democratic socialist, although he didn't talk about it very openly during his lifetime. It's clear from the historical record that he was he had moved quite close to democratic socialism and saw that as the direction the country should be going in. Um, he was also a clergyman who brought people into political activism. Um, he looked towards uh, prayer for guidance during difficult moments of his life. So he's a figure that incorporated a lot of these different threads. Um, other figures I could name like Thomas Merton, who was a monk uh, in the Catholic, in a Catholic order and started exploring Eastern religions because he saw that their meditation traditions were in some ways similar to Christian meditation traditions. And he wanted to see what he could learn from them or what they could learn from comparing them. Also got involved in writing about uh, social causes like civil rights and anti-nuclear and against the Vietnam War. Uh, Dorothy Day, who started out as a Marxist and uh, converted to uh, Catholicism at some point in her life, created the Christian, uh, the Catholic worker movement which organized people to take care of the poor directly, um, give them houses of hospitality, and also to protest in the streets against war and in favor of workers' rights and other causes, left-wing causes. So a lot of movements gelling together in the mid 20th century in that direction and influencing me, by the way, who grew up in the 50s and 60s. And speaking of the 60s, one more thing to throw into the mix is the spread of the use of psychedelic drugs, which has a long, long history in religious uses, especially among indigenous peoples, and the uh, exposure to Eastern forms of uh, meditation and mindfulness that came because in the 1960s, there was a relaxation of immigra immigration laws, and it brought a lot of Eastern teachers to the United States who the uh, former hippies wanted to learn from. They, they wanted to move beyond drugs to expanding consciousness through meditation and Eastern spiritual techniques and a lot of different Buddhist and Indian teachers that they could follow. And eventually these things, psychedelics and meditation practices became incorporated into therapy. A lot of the um, people who studied meditation with these Eastern groups became psychotherapists. And now we have studies, scientific studies of the effects, say, of psychedelics on healing trauma or on meditation and how it um, can help people with depression and anxiety, uh, mindfulness practices, all these things bring spiritual practices out of the strictly religious context and into real life to help people heal their psychological wounds, uh, develop their fullest potential as wise and compassionate beings, and to um, also inspire to work for a better world. All these things. Okay, so that's the story of this that I wanted to get across, that there's an intersection of social activism and a form of spirituality a little uh, distant from strict dogmas and, and adherence to old practices and beliefs and how it's coming all together in a movement that I think has lessons for the future of socialism as well. I want to draw three particular lessons out of this historical story. The first one is that socialist movement should not be explicitly atheist, nor should it be privileging atheist viewpoints. Rather, it should be open 
to all kinds of ways of investigating spiritual practices, whatever their religious content and their usefulness in helping us to organize and to um, inspire political action and to develop ourselves as better human beings. So I think the socialist movement should be open and um, not to say agnostic, but what is it? Not not um, not take a, a uh, sectarian position on the value of spirituality, but welcome all who want to fight for the same causes, no matter what their take is on God or religion or spirituality or any of that, whether they have more traditional Marxist views or they have more leaning towards more spiritual views, openness towards those in dialogue between them and working together in common cause. That's what I would like to see for the future of any socialist movement. Second lesson is that techniques of resistance could be very different and especially the metaphors. Now I accept that we live in a class-based society. It's divided between a small elite that owns the majority of productive property, the capitalist class, and most of the rest of us who have to depend on labor or various forms of transfers of income from other people, either charity or government programs or whatever, to be able to live. We don't have significant assets. And because capitalism tries to get the most out of workers for the least pay, um, workers have a vested interest in working against capitalists and capitalists vice versa are working against the interests of workers. So I accept that class conflict is a reality and that is something we should be aware of and uh, recognize. But I think the metaphors of wherefore, warfare and conflict that we're in a war, class war, um, should be done away with in favor of language that's more about unity of all human beings and how that's, I think that sense is deeply rooted in all of us if we um, tap into it consciously and try to develop it, that we want to bring people together against all kinds of lines, whether or not they're in a particular class position, um, that we're not opposed to particular people class of capitalists, we're opposed to the system of capitalism itself. And that doesn't mean you should just accept things the way they are and wait for the conversion or the generous heartedness of capitalists. It means you can use techniques like Gandhi used that were not aimed at defeating the enemy, but, uh, well, defeating the enemy, but in a different way, not the use of violence in any way, but rather the use of organizing people and cooperating, withdrawing from the system in order to um, force concessions from it, or direct action protests, challenging, using symbolic actions to challenge aspects of the system that you felt are unjust and wanted to highlight. There's a whole host of techniques that come out of the nonviolent tradition, which are not premised simply on not using violence. I mean, that's not the point of it. The point of it is to use techniques that are in correspondence with the world you're trying to create, one in which human beings progress through reason, discussion, and their ability to consent or not consent to particular ways of organizing social life. So I think we can learn a lot from that, from Gandhian and uh, Gandhian techniques and the way they've been developed by other people since then. Uh, and we should utilize those consciously and use the language that is more appropriate to that rather than the language, this militant language of anger at the enemy and um, violent revolution and all, all the 
forms that just bring us back to a world that you don't want. I don't think you can create that better world when you're relying on techniques that are very much associated with the world we're trying to pass beyond. Uh, the, we want a world where people work together consensually and by, voluntarily and not through force of any kind. Uh, final lesson, which I, I'm not even, I'm speculating on this, but I think it's something worth considering, is that in a lot of these spiritual techniques, there is a time in which people develop an intuition of being guided from within that I think could be useful. I think a Gandhi and Martin Luther King, when they came to decision points where reasoning about what to be done was not sufficient to make a clear um, decision, they turned to prayer or meditation, um, reflection, until they felt they had some kind of inner intuition about the direction to go. Now, I'm not saying that we should follow anybody that claims to have some kind of divine inspiration, because obviously a lot of people say it and few people seem to embody it. But I'm thinking we should develop that in each of us, because there's going to be moments when the path forward is not clear. And if in developing yourself as a human being, you're also developing your ability to send some guidance, maybe just out of our connectedness to the whole universe, we become more sensitive to that. We don't have to posit that there's a um, higher intelligence directing us in, in a traditional God-like sense. We can picture it simply as the universe is all interconnected and somehow brought forth human beings and now wants to move us in this direction. So let's listen in on what that instinct is. Um, so those are the three lessons I'd like you to consider. And uh, I think that's it for this week's show. Thanks a lot for listening once again. And if you want to go find my videos, my podcast, or leave comments for them, you can find the places to do that by going to politicaldharma.com. Again, the opening and closing music is courtesy of Patty Rose and Joey Helpish. And we'll see you again. Uh, oh, I won't see you. Maybe you'll see me. Maybe you'll hear me. I hope so. <laughs> Till the next time. Bye. I see the chains are breaking We gained our focus, the moves we're making We'll prove to determine our self-worth As a passenger on this vehicle earth